Well, good morning, everyone. We hope you had a great Easter last Sunday. Uh, congratulations to Clint and Sarah for uh, winning the dress-up competition. That was a lot of fun, and we're so appreciative of the fact that you guys are participating in some of the crazy things that we're putting you up to uh, during this crazy time that we are living in. Well, today we start a new series out of the book of Daniel called Living Fearless in a Fearful Culture. How do you, in the midst of a uh, ungodly culture, how do we stand firm in our faith? Uh, I believe that when all of this is said and done, when we get through all of this, that the reality is, is there's going to be things that are different in our culture. And interestingly, when we decided to do this series, it was at the end of 2019, and we had no idea that we would find ourselves in the midst of this pandemic that we are in. And yet I believe that it couldn't be any more timely than now. And so as we take a look at this book, I hope that you will find hope and encouragement and courage to stand firm in our faith and be a people who don't operate out of fear, but actually begin to shift and change our culture. Well, the book of Daniel is written by Daniel, right? Of all people, it's written by Daniel. And what we'll discover is that it's not only possible to live fearlessly uh, in the midst of a fearful culture. What we will find as we go through these chapters, we will find that it's actually possible to influence the culture. Now, a lot of the stories in this book you'll be familiar with because this book, the book of Daniel, is why flannel boards were made. This is why uh, VeggieTales was created, right? It was created for stories that come out of this book, stories like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. This is uh, Daniel in the lion's den. It's all of these stories that as kids we remember, but now we're taking a look at how do they apply to our life in our culture today. And when it comes to these kinds of books, like the books of the Old Testament, oftentimes what happens are uh, people get confused because the reality is, is it's not chronological. The truth is, is with the books of the Old Testament, the books are categorized by the types of books that they are. Uh, in the books of the Old Testament, what we find is that the first five books are grouped together, and then you have the historical section of the books, and then you have the poetics, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Song of Solomons, and the Ecclesiastes. And then you've got what are called the major prophets and the minor prophets. Not because one's better than the other, it's just that it has to do with length, right? The major prophets are longer than the minor prophets. And Daniel is one of the major prophets. The first six chapters of this book however, are very historical in nature. They could have easily been put into the historical books, but these aren't just great stories. They're not just great events of history. These were put into the prophets, I believe, as a playbook that you're going to need when this comes around, when this kind of cultural dynamic happens in our generation. And it shows us some ways in how to live life in a culture that ultimately, to be honest, rejects God. 
Now, to give you the context of this book, though I thought it would be fun for me to give you this huge history lesson, I actually thought it would be more fun for you to hear from someone else. And so we have a video that we want you to watch that gives you the whole context and the summary of the book of Daniel. It comes from an organization called The Bible Project. And the video you're about to watch is just under nine minutes, and although that seems like a very long time, the reality is, is it would take me 40 minutes to do what these guys did in nine. And so we want you to take a look at this video. It's a video that uh, the, the Bible Project is are videos that Pastor Jay has recommended uh, in the Bible study. And we're going to actually put a link down in the comment section to the Bible Project because this is a great opportunity and a time for you as you're stuck at home for you to click on some of the videos. They're very theologically accurate. Uh, they're entertaining, and they just do a great job presenting the things of the Bible. So go ahead and take a look at this. The book of Daniel the story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted. They're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death, and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. 
They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a God, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts. And like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast identified as a really evil empire, and it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of Man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is the image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. 
Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John the visionary who wrote the Revelation could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings and their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. Okay, so now that you have this summary of the Bible, we're going to begin, or, or not of the whole Bible, but of, of Daniel, we're going to begin in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. In other words, this would have been uh, the church of today. So they brought some of this holy furniture from the church all the way to Babylon, and that would have been like one of the biggest slaps in the face that they would have ever experienced. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. So his job was to literally, socially re-engineer them culturally, to take the for lack of a better term, to take the Jewishness out of them 
and make them like Babylonians in their language, in their literature, in their, their knowledge, their clothes, and their food. And so the question for us as we dive into this book is, what do you do? When, when culture shifts, do you shift with it? We could say it like this, that, that culture may change, but God does not. And over the years, what we've seen is we've seen generations of cultures that shift, and now we find ourselves in this cultural dynamic that is operating and living out of fear. And so for us, the goal of this series is, is to not tell you what's right and what's wrong. You, you don't you don't need us for that. I, I've said this before, that uh, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and so you, you, that's the job of the Holy Spirit, to convict and to, to tell you those things. But, but my role is to just connect you to God. I just need you to, to listen and, and understand and hear from God what it is that you're supposed to do in the midst of the culture that we live in. So I want us to pick up on verse 7 here, when culture uh, begins when the culture begins to shift in verse 7 of chapter 1 it says and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names Daniel he called Belteshazzar Hananiah he called Shadrach Mishael he called Meshach and Azariah he called Abednego now I want us to think of of these next few points that I'm about to share with you I want you to think about them based on the culture that exists in our world today because the first goal of culture, or at least an ungodly culture, is that it will try to rename you. It will try to, it'll try to change your identity from who God made you to be to what the world wants you to be like. And I think it's no coincidence that we live in a world and in a culture where so many people question who they are. They question, they have identity issues. They're, they're struggling with their own identity. And I believe that there is a direct assault on our God-given destiny and identity. In fact, this is really the whole purpose of uh, the course that we take people through in our church called Unique. We want you, we, or at least we want to help you discover how God has wired you, what he's made you for. We want you to understand your God-given identity instead of allowing the culture or a job to dictate who you are. And so we would love, as we continue on, we're actually just about to finish up a group of uh, folks who have been through Unique, and at least the first section of it, uh, and they're all going to be naming their, uh, their two words in their life called this coming Wednesday, actually. And, uh, and so we're super excited about that. And, and I want you to consider, possibly, as we, uh, as we move forward in this, as this comes as an opportunity to be offered in the future, that you might consider it for yourself. So I want to show you this. I want to show you the, the dynamic of, of what took place here when these guys' names were changed. And it, honestly, it's a bit scary, the difference of the, the definition of their names. 
So here we go. In Daniel's case, Daniel's name meant God is my judge, that, that I answer to God and God alone. But his name was shifted to Belteshazzar, which means lady, protect the king. Soak that in for just a second and let the Holy Spirit speak to you just for a moment. Because the truth is, is that we live in a culture where one of the attacks is really on gender confusion and gender identity. And in the case of Daniel, he was given a name that says you're a lady and you don't answer to God, you answer to us. That he's, he's trying to take the focus from God and put it on to man. You don't need to listen to God. God doesn't have the right label for you. God doesn't have the identity that you need. We have that. We know who you really are. And I would say to you, just don't listen to the world's labels. Let us have ears to be tuned into who God says that we are. The, the second individual, Hananiah, uh, his name meant Yahweh has been gracious. Oh, what, in other words, oh, what an amazing God I serve. And his name then was shifted and changed to Shadrach, which means I am fearful of God. That God's not good, he's actually mad at you. That the focus goes from God is good to God is bad. And the world will tell you that. We, we do live in a culture that, that says you don't want to serve God. He's going to restrict your life. He's going to take the fun out of everything. He's going to lead you down the road of boredom. He's not for you. He's against you. He's got all of those rules and, and laws and thous and shouts and knots. The next individual, the next young man was Mishael whose name meant who is what God is, that there is none like my God, and that there's this real confidence and this real sense of understanding of who God is. And his name was changed to Meshach, which means I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. And there's kind of... There's this kind of sentiment that's taking place, even in the midst of our culture today, where people are, to be honest, they're kind of afraid to say that they're even a Christian, because they're afraid of what it's going to cost them. And can I just say that as a church, as, as Christ followers, we have to move from that cowardice-ness to a confidence, that, that it's okay to be confident in who God is and who he is to us and how he's made us, that we can walk confidently in the knowledge and understanding of who God is, and we don't ever have to cower away from that. And finally, Azariah, his name meant Yahweh has helped me. That I'm, that I'm close to God, that I know God, and he's, he's personally involved in my life, and his name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. That the focus shifted from a son to slave, that it, that it went from relationship into production, to being used for a purpose. And, 
And so the, I, I mention all of those shifts in the name because when, when culture begins to shift, when it operates out of fear, what happens is we better know who we are. We better have a, an understanding and a security of, of who we are in Christ. We have to have that. Verse 8 goes on. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. That, that he didn't come to culture and he didn't say, y'all are going to hell and you know it. right? He, he didn't come and say, Say, you guys are bad people. No, he, it just says that he, re, he just resolved. In other words, you, you can do it, but I've resolved that I'm not going to do it. And so he resolved that with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, that he wasn't going to participate in that because this went against their Jewish culture. It went against it in a couple different ways. First, in their dietary laws, and then most likely this food and this wine would have been offered up to idols, and so then it went against their spiritual culture and convictions. It goes on, and it says, Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. When culture begins to shift and when things when, when we live in an ungodly culture, what often will happen is it will try, and this is number two in my points, is it will try to test you. It'll try to test you. It will try to make us a group of people that don't have any convictions. A group of people who kind of just are watered down and 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 vanilla in such a way that we don't go either way. We, we, we don't have any strong convictions. And what it'll do is it'll try to pull us into things that, that aren't really horrible. They're not all that bad. I mean, I think we would notice or recognize if it was terrible, but, but it tries to just pull us into things that aren't that bad. See, when, when culture begins to shift, I think it's really important for us to not lose our convictions. And what's interesting is that God in, in this situation, he isn't in this story until Daniel resolves. And the point of that is that Daniel stood with God and then God stood with Daniel. Verse nine, now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord the King who has appointed you food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? In other words, you're going to look hungry and I'm going to get killed for it. That if you're not eating the food and drinking the wine that I'm giving you and the king sees you and you look a little uh, you know, depleted in the face, then I'm going to lose my head over it. He said, then you would endanger my head before the king. And then in verse 11, it says, Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, test your servants for 10 days. I'm just going to pause for a second and just give you a little bit of biblical insight here is that every time you see the number 10 in the Bible, it, it usually relates to testing. There's Ten Commandments, the testing of our faith in God, the, the tithe is a test. The, the disciples were in the upper room for ten days testing their faith. Uh, 
The church in Smyrna, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, they were, they were persecuted and tested for 10 days. That when culture shifts, there's testing that's involved. And it goes on. It says, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. If you've ever done the Daniel fast, this is where this comes from. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. And so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. A fearful culture will try and test you and test your faith in the midst of it. Number three, it will try to claim you as its own. If you want to be a difference maker, then never give in to the pressure. Verse 15 says, at the end of 10 days it was seen Actually, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh, which I, you know, I guess that's good, a good thing. Fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. In other words, God's way, it's better. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, which we're going to talk about next week. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them, listen to this, ten times better than all of the other magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. Ten times better. They were tested ten times and proven ten times better. That God's way always works. So here's a, a question for us to consider and ponder as we close. Will I change the world or will the world change me? Am I going to set the culture or am I going to reflect the culture? My very first sermon given at Bible college was on the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. Uh, I know you probably know this, but the, the basic difference between a thermostat and a thermometer is a thermostat controls the temperature. A thermometer, on the other hand, it just measures it, it reflects it. And, and one, one of them changes the environment, the thermostat. The other, it becomes like it. And so the question for us is, are we going to be a thermostat or are we going to be a thermometer? Are we going to change the culture we live in or are we just going to reflect it? Because the truth is, is we've been called to be the light of the world. We're called to illumine the darkness. We're called to be set apart. Now listen, it's not easy being a thermostat. Thermometer is a, a, a simple device. It's, some it's a glass tube. It's some mercury. But, but a thermostat, that's complex. It's complicated. It's wires and, and electronics. It's, it's more complicated and more difficult to be a thermostat. The way I see it is, really, we only have three options in this world that we live in if we are going to live fearlessly. We're either going to separate from the culture, which is often rooted in fear and self-preservation, or we're going to assimilate and become like the culture, 
which often results in compromise, compromise of our convictions and our, and our belief system. Or the third option, and honestly I feel is the best option for us, is that we're going to remain faithful to a faithful God. To live as a committed minority, as John Tyson says it. He says, a committed minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships that are knitted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. See, when we live in a fearful culture, it will try to rename you. It will try to test you and to claim you. And we have three options in the midst of that. Do we separate? Do we assimilate? Or are we faithful to a faithful God? As we continue on into this series, we want you to realize that this is meant to inspire and motivate you with hope. We will see over the course of the next few weeks, we will see people in this book who are living fearlessly in one of the most scary nations that ever existed. Yet they had an impact on their culture. They changed the culture in which they lived. And so no matter the kingdom or the nation, no matter how oppressive or evil The truth is is that God always has a remnant of people who are faithful to him and faithful to carry out his message of life and hope to a fearful world. As we continue on in the series, starting tomorrow, we're going to have a question and answer time every Monday following the, the, the sermon. And this is an opportunity for you to Ask us questions, for you to email us questions at info at lifehousesa.com, info at lifehousesa.com. We'll put a link into the comment section. And you could just ask us questions. We're going to answer those live. You could also ask questions of us live on Monday. It's going to be Jay and I as we, uh, as we attempt to answer the questions, the best that we know how, that come out of Uh, this sermon series for you. We're also going to have a Bible reading plan that goes along with this for you to follow along uh, in the midst of us being uh, sequestered and quarantined at home. So I hope that this series is something that brings life and hope to you and courage to stand up in a world that was so conditioned to bow down to the culture. Let's pray.